An elections roundup across Southeast Asia, Blackpink, Barbie, and the South China Sea. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Jaffet Kitson, and today is July 13th, 2023. On today's show... I mean, as far as I see it, the more that China keeps engaging in these incursions, the more it sort of wears down some of these various areas of where these kind of states can assert their sovereignty. So those two sort of developments go hand in hand. I mean, yes, it's one thing to get the code of conduct negotiations up and running, but they keep falling in a context where some of the sovereignty might be even more challenged as time goes by. That was Natalie Sambi, who chatted with Greg Poling, Alina Noor, and Harrison Preta to give us the latest on the South China Sea. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Ramil Mercado in the studio. Ramil is currently an intern at the CSIS Southeast Asia program. Welcome, Ramil. Hey, Jaffet. Thank you for having me on. Of course. So one fun fact I have here about Ramil is that he's a language enthusiast. Which ones do you speak? Right. So shockingly, I speak English. Then there's Indonesian, Tagalog, Brazilian, Portuguese, and Spanish. I also studied Mandarin, Italian, and Arabic in the past, so I have working knowledge of those as well. Wow. What made you learn all those languages? Well, there's many different reasons. For some, it's a cultural connection. For others, it's for friends, research, or travel. Sometimes, though, it's because I want to listen to music without constantly looking at translations online, you know? Got it, got it. So what language do you have your eyes on next? Hmm, maybe Korean, because I do love screaming the lyrics to Blackpink songs when I'm alone. Speaking of Blackpink... (sighs) Are we going to start off with that news headline? Yep, we sure are. For those of you who haven't heard, Blackpink, yes, the K-pop girl group, was recently the source of geopolitical tensions in Vietnam. That's right. The Vietnamese government accused Blackpink's tour organizer, IME Entertainment Group Asia, of using a map featuring the controversial Nine Dash Line, or Cao Tung Line as it's known in Vietnam, for their promotional materials. The Vietnamese government then ordered an inspection of IME. A representative from the company said that the whole situation was an unfortunate misunderstanding. And you know what's wild? They're not the only pop culture icons under fire for South China Sea controversy. Oh, you're right. The Vietnamese government banned the Barbie movie also because of a map allegedly depicting the infamous Nine Dash line. You know, life is not plastic, and neither is it fantastic. Senators in the Philippines have called on the government to join Vietnam in banning the film. Senator Risa Hontiveros stated that, quote, the Barbie movie is fiction, and so is the Nine Dash line. End quote. On July 6th, Warner Brothers Studio made a statement suggesting that the world map in question is a, quote, whimsical, childlike crayon drawing not intended to make any statement, end quote. You know, I never thought I'd see the day where Barbie and K-pop were the catalysts of controversy surrounding the South China Sea. But here we are. Crazy how the world works. Crucially, these controversies come at a time when the Philippines and its neighbors are experiencing increasing tensions with China in the South China Sea. On July 5th, Philippine officials claimed that China's Coast Guard was harassing, obstructing, and engaging in dangerous maneuvers against Philippine vessels in the area. Right. These allegations came shortly after Philippine Coast Guard boats on a naval operation reported that they were harassed by Chinese Coast Guard vessels near the Second Thomas Shoal. As always, the situation is contentious. Hey, that reminds me. We recently had our 13th annual South China Sea Conference a few weeks ago. Yes, we did. If you want to gain more context on what's happening in the region, check out our website to hear the latest developments from our panelists. Let's pivot to our rapid-fire Southeast Asian election roundup. Ramil, can you start us off with the latest on Thailand? 
Well, since the unexpected success of Move Forward in May, there's been a lot of back and forth surrounding what might come next. Though Move Forward won a plurality of votes, they didn't have enough votes to form a majority government. As such, Move Forward, Putai, and six other smaller parties announced their intention to form a ruling coalition shortly after the elections ended. Putai, another pro-democracy party, won the second highest number of votes in the May elections. While the two coalition leaders have worked to maintain the eight-party group's unity, there are still some points of contention between them. For example, Putai does not support the anti-Lesse Majesté law position endorsed by Move Forward. Even though there was a standoff throughout June for the speakership, the parties found a middle ground and elected Wan Muhammad Nur Mata, the Prachachat party leader, as Speaker of the House. Greg and I just wrote an update about this on the latest in Southeast Asia. The appointment of Wan Muhammad as Speaker showed the willingness of the two major coalition partners to compromise. Despite these encouraging outcomes, there's still a possibility that the Move Forward Potai-led coalition will not have the votes to elect Pita as Prime Minister due to holdouts and defections in the Thai Senate. The PM election is scheduled for July 13th, so we'll find out soon enough. What's next, Jaffet? Now we're moving south to Malaysia. Plans for the state elections are in full swing, with the election dates for six states set for August 12th. Malaysia just had its general elections last year. What did these state elections mean for the country? It looks like this is the first big test for Prime Minister Anwar's fragile ruling coalition. After last year's hung parliament, Anwar's coalition has been on tenuous footing. These elections are an important temperature check. They'll gauge how people are feeling about the government. How are things looking, Ramil? Ex-Prime Minister Mahathir has been riling up his primarily Malay base over race, which might affect the standing of Anwar's unity government. Race and religion have always been fault lines when it comes to Malaysian politics. Gen Z might be a deciding force in this election, especially since the voting age was lowered last year. Some parties, like the Pan-Malaysian Islamic Party, are turning to social media platforms like TikTok to appeal to Malay youth. This raises concerns that disinformation and internet-based fear-mongering surrounding tense issues could negatively impact the socio-political fabric of the country, a challenge shared by Malaysia's ASEAN neighbors and democratic nations around the world. Got it. Let's shift gears over to Cambodia, the last of our three countries on our election roundup. Hun Sen, who has led the country for the past 40 years, kicked off the Cambodian People's Party's campaign ahead of the general election on July 23rd. He and his party are running virtually unopposed. Recently, the Meta Oversight Board recommended that Hun Sen's account be suspended because of a post where he threatened members of the opposition with a beating from CPP supporters. He quit Facebook before the Oversight Board could ban him, encouraging his large online following to switch to Telegram with him. There's been a lot of international criticism over some of the undemocratic practices surrounding this election. Absolutely. His party's only viable opposition, the Candlelight Party, was banned in May. Meanwhile, the prominent opposition leader, Kem Soka, was imprisoned for treason. Hun Sen's son, Hun Manet, was declared the future prime minister by the CPP in 2021. Hun Sen has kept him in the wings for years, hoping to one day pass down the premiership to him. For now, the CPP remains strong and its future seems secure. Indeed. And those are the headlines. Thanks for stopping by, Ramil. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Natalie Sambi and Harrison Prita. Stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I am Gregory Poling with the Center for Strategic International Studies, joined by my co-pilot, Alina Noor of the Carnegie Endowment. Howdy, Alina. Hello, as always. And today we have two very special guests. First, we have Natalie Sambi. Nat is the executive director of Verve Research, based in Western Australia, and a non-resident 
a fellow with the Brookings Institution here in Washington, something for which we will not hold it against her, or at least not too much. And then our in-house talent, Harrison Praytop. Harrison is the associate director and the one who does all the actual work these days for the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey, great to be here. Uh, and the reason that we brought Nat and Harrison on is because last week was the 13th annual South China Sea Conference here at CSIS, at which both Nat and Harrison spoke. And we realized we haven't really done a South China Sea update in a while. So while Harrison actually came into the office and Nat was here, why not grab them and chat South China Sea? So with that, South China Sea, Harrison, why don't I start with you? What is AMTI watching recently? Well... As I said at the conference, I think the story of the year has been the Philippines' step up in activities. And one of the things we've been looking at just in the past few weeks has been the deployment of the buoys. So they deployed five buoys this May, following from five last May, at some features across the Spratly Islands. And they're planning to deploy six more this year. China responded to the most recent deployment with some of their own buoys at three features. But my eye is on Second Thomas Shoal, where they have not deployed a buoy yet, and where Philippine-China tensions have really been focused for the last year, or even the last two years. There was just another incident of harassment in the news today of uh, the Philippine Coast Guard doing a resupply mission there. So we're taking a look at where they've put the buoys, thinking about where they might put them in the future, and, and my eye is really on Second Thomas Shoal. So... Harrison, for those of us who have not been following the South China Sea very closely, what's the significance of the buoys? Well, it's part of a new set of activities that the Philippines has done in the last year. So first and foremost, they've been conducting a lot more patrols and they've been publicizing these patrols. They've been posting videos and pictures from features in the South China Sea where they have run into Chinese militia when the China Coast Guard has blocked the paths of Philippine ships. So there's this very active publicity campaign. And then along with that, you know, the Philippines has also been stepping up its relationship with the United States and the progress on EDCA, the announcement of more EDCA sites. We've seen kind of a real 180 from the previous administration in the Philippines. Under Duterte, we had radio silence on a lot of these issues, and now we're getting full blast inviting the media along for ride-alongs. So within this context, the buoys are a new tool and also an explicitly an assertion of Philippine claims. They're putting the Philippine flag there and they're saying specifically that these markers are going to show everyone that these are Philippine reefs. I don't know that the U.S. would agree with that or with, that anybody else would, but they've said that that's part of the purpose. Well, first, an acronym check. EDCA is the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement. Second, I feel like we're playing a drinking game to see how many times we can get you to say buoys in it, a single podcast. It's not my favorite word to say. And believe it, I've typed it. It's in the article more times than I want in the upcoming feature. So. <laughs> well, Nat, let's turn to you. Yes, the Philippines, via the Enhancement of the Alliance, and this more activist attempt to assert sovereignty has been probably the big news getter in the South China Sea. But we've also seen significant, I think, shifts in Indonesian policy toward what Indonesia would call the North Natuna Sea. Can you walk us through a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, also great work, Manila. But looking at things from Indonesia's perspective, I think some of the developments I wanted to touch on kind of fall in two main categories. So on the good side of the ledger, Indonesia has been busy rallying up some of the ASEAN troops and trying to find initiatives like the intra-ASEAN naval drill, which was announced a couple of weeks ago. That'll take place later on this year in September. That was originally rumored to be in a contested area. Now it's just going to be around the waters of South China Sea, around the North Natuna area. But I think it's a really positive development, having something, a mechanism that's ASEAN-focused. And even if not all ASEAN states come along, I think the whole point of having them working together to begin with, starting that conversation, that's a really good thing. But on the less positive side of things, the Chinese incursions have happened over the last 12 months. We've had them through June, August, December. We've had research vessels that have been hanging around for about seven weeks. And Indonesia's Coast Guard being given the order not to intervene. So there's a bit of a mixed picture there. So there's just that level of incursion that's still going on. Indonesia not wanting to make this a big diplomatic issue with China, engaging in other kinds of activities such as trying to create maritime uh, sort of economic zones, uh, engaging with the Coast Guard. So my analysis is really that this is quite a still a piecemeal approach. There's still that sensitivity about not wanting to piss off China, but at the same time wanting to be seen to be doing something about its sovereignty. And of course, in the background, there's the ongoing negotiations of the Code of Conduct. Do either of you have any updates on the status of those negotiations? So Indonesia, as current chair of ASEAN at the moment, from March has sort of kick-started the talks again. But we'll see what happens ultimately. I mean, as far as I see it, the more that China keeps engaging in these incursions, the more it sort of wears down some of these various areas of where these kind of states can assert their sovereignty. So those two sort of developments go hand in hand. I mean, yes, it's one thing to get the code of conduct negotiations up and running, but they keep falling in a context where some of the sovereignty might be even more challenged as time goes by. Well, I mean, there's always these announcements about the negotiations continuing and they're making progress towards something. But to my knowledge, there hasn't been any resolution of the key differences that have stalled negotiations for so long. So until there's a breakthrough on foreign military presence in the South China Sea and other other terms that Southeast Asian states have objected to from China's side, I don't see the code of conduct having any significant impacts anytime soon. Yeah, nor do you hear the officials from claimant states who are actually responsible for the negotiations expressing much optimism. I mean, political leaders, of course, go out and say, code of conduct, code of conduct. But when you talk to those who have actually been negotiating for now over 25 years, feels very much like Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill. You don't hear them actually talking about it as if it's, it's imminent. Now, let's stick with Indonesia for a minute. As you said, the head of the Indonesian military, Chief Staff, had, had suggested holding first ASEAN military drills in disputed waters, which has now been walked back. Last year, we had a suggestion, seemingly unapproved, from the head of Bakamla, the Indonesian Coast Guard, to have a claimants-only Coast Guards meeting. And we've had statements out of Defense Minister Prabowo's camp suggesting a harder stance on the South China Sea. And yet the talking points from the presidential palace, President Jokowi and Foreign Minister Retno are much, much softer. Is there a clear division between rising, I guess, threat perceptions from those in the security establishment and, on the other hand, politicos who want to keep business as usual and maintain positive economic relations with Beijing above all else? 
So there's a lot, I think, in what you set up just now. I think it's not unusual for different elites within the Indonesian community to speak with a different voice based on the personality of their agency. So it's not unusual for diplomats to have a little bit of a softer language and obviously for the security professionals to be a little bit more muscular in their language. I think what the concern is that you can have a plurality of voices on these kinds of issues. I think what Indonesia would really benefit is if they had some sort of clear strategy about what they wanted to do and how they were going to proceed. So it's very clear that Indonesia's interests are sovereignty, peace and prosperity, where the North Natusa Sea is concerned, because all of those things link up with Indonesia's ability to be able to, the relationship it can enjoy with China feeds back into the economic stimulation that it can have within its own country. But having Indonesia with a coherent strategy about where it wants to head, which resources it wants to allocate to dealing with these kinds of incursions. What is the ranking of the different elements of statecraft that they would use to apply under various scenarios? And what kind of a plan would they have that would be revisable every couple of years? If they had that kind of plan in place, then it wouldn't be so anxiety-inducing to have this plurality of voices because everybody would be on the same page. It wouldn't be subject to the whims of strong individuals who might have financial incentives to go a little bit softer on Indonesia, and it may not be at the whims of political figures such as Prabowo who want to posture and show that they'll be strong on national security because everybody would have a clear picture. Yes, we might have those personality differences in how we express, but the nation, the whole of nation, is going in the same direction, saying we're going to be using these tools of statecraft, the military in this way, we're going to be using diplomacy in this way, we're going to be using economic levers in this way, but everybody's headed in the same direction. And that's what I don't see right now. And it may never happen, but I think at least having that conversation to begin with, even our context, even the think tank context and academic context is a good start. But isn't that the, in theory, the purpose of the coordinating ministry? Everything in theory, yes, of course. But even then, I think there needs to be an articulation and I think there are two reasons for that. Like I said earlier, to make sure everybody is on the same page and there is input, not just from the government, but as a whole of nation. Where is the media going to play? What role is the media going to play in this? What role is civil society going to play in this? But the second fact is that Indonesia is a democracy. And if Indonesia wants to be able to have a strong stance on going forward, wants to indicate to its people that it will be looking after their peace and prosperity, then being transparent and actually allowing a national conversation about this. Maybe it's not going to be as vibrant a conversation, but at least an articulation and accountability to its people about how national resources are going to be spent with respect to maritime security and the South China Sea is really important because I'm sure that many Indonesians on the one hand are wondering, why is our government letting China do this to us? And on the other hand, they might be wondering, well, what's also going on with military modernization? Why don't we turn to one of the other claimants, Vietnam? We do not hear as much in the foreign press about Vietnam, largely because Vietnamese officials don't engage in the same kind of radical transparency we've been seeing from the Philippine Coast Guard or the kind of off-the-cuff, ambitious policy pronouncements we've been getting from parts of the Indonesian government. But on the water, what has Vietnam actually been doing over the last year or so? So the most significant development has been their land reclamation at several of their occupied features um, at a pretty substantial scale. It's still, if you look at Vietnamese land reclamation over the last 10 years, it's still one-sixth of what China did in three years back in 2013. So it's not approaching China's scale, but they've done more in the last year than Vietnam had done in the previous 10 years combined. So what that means in terms of something more measurable is that you had Spratly Island, Vietnam's largest outpost, their only outpost with an airstrip, there's now going to be 
two, three, or maybe four islands just as big or bigger than that that Vietnam has. And what they're going to put there, we don't know yet. They've created a lot of land. There might be a lot more land coming, but we haven't seen the facilities go up yet. So there could be additional airstrips. There could just be several large harbors. And what that will play out to in the next few years remains to be seen. But if we look at what happened with China is that once they had larger harbors, they were able to have much more ships in the South China Sea on a daily basis. Now, Vietnam doesn't have the same level of shipbuilding that China has. They may not have hundreds of Coast Guard boats in reserve just waiting for a harbor. But if we do see much larger Vietnamese outposts, we may see more Vietnamese ships in the Spratly Islands on a regular basis conducting patrols. Out of curiosity, could other foreign ships dock there? I mean, theoretically, they could. I'm not sure who Vietnam would invite. To my knowledge, I don't believe that any foreign ship has docked at, at least in a public announced port visit at, at Vietnamese beaches in the Spratlys, Greg? The only, well, so no, there's, as far as I know, never been a foreign, at least foreign government vessel dock at anybody's islands since, certainly since the 70s. You do have the now annual Vietnam-Philippines goodwill games that they play usually on Southwest K, uh, which is just like a mile from Northeast K. So one is Vietnamese held, one is Philippine held. And they've been doing things like annual soccer games and, and volleyball games for years now. That's the only time I know of where the troops of one claimant step foot on an island held by the other. And that's a unique case because that's also the only island that was taken by one of the Southeast Asian claimants from one of the other Southeast Asian claimants, although it was the then Republic of Vietnam that took it just a few months before Saigon's fall. But I have heard whispers that both sides, now that the Marcos government is kind of reaching out more explicitly to Vietnam, that both sides are interested in elevating those goodwill exchanges, maybe to a more kind of government to government, not just mill-mill level. So there's a possibility there. And the fact that the Philippines are also upgrading their infrastructure, particularly at T2 Island, their biggest, but among others, makes it a lot easier to just kind of get around. Now you don't have to go on a week-long cruise to visit either Vietnamese or Philippine islands. You can take a plane. And the obvious reason that many would hesitate to visit is that a lot of countries don't recognize the other one's claims over those islands. So if the U.S. was to dock at a any particular Vietnamese outpost, they might find that the Philippines uh, doesn't particularly like that. So... It is interesting that the Philippines and Vietnam have been maybe looking at closer cooperation because anything like that that goes over the top of these fundamentally opposed sovereignty claims, anything that ignores those issues and looks to practical management or practical cooperation building, I think is has the most chance of producing positive results in the short term. Because when we look at these massive multilateral COC or any even larger issues towards resolving the disputes, a lot of it is quite hard to see how it would materialize in the next five or 10 years when it's easy to see how a conflict might materialize in the next five or 10 years. So that type of minilateral collaboration between Southeast Asian claimants is in particular something I'm interested to see if it could materialize on scientific research or fisheries management. We've heard whispers of that, but nothing recent. A historical footnote, Spratly Island is also not claimed by the Philippines, which is either harder or easier. If you were thinking about Southeast Asian 
kind of intra-Southeast Asian cooperation, Spratly Island itself is an interesting example because the Philippine claim, the Kalayaan box that Marcos formalized uh, in the 70s, purposely avoided encompassing Spratly Island itself in a not very convincing legal argument that Spratly Island was all that counted as part of the Spratlys previously claimed by France and China. And, and neither does Malaysia. So Vietnam and China are the only two claimants that claim Spratly Island itself. And I think your point, Harrison, about practical cooperation being a positive way forward is a good one. But I, I don't know that it would address some of the lingering suspicions among the Southeast Asian claimant states about whether groups of claimants will go off and, and make side deals on their own while alienating the others. So there is also that piece to consider, I guess. But I think the other point to note from the Vietnamese buildup is effectively the DOC, the Declaration on Code of Conduct, has been dead for a long time. And yet there's this irony that the COC negotiations keep taking place. It's almost like everyone's in complete denial that we've completely violated the spirit, if not the letter of the DOC, but still we keep up this facade of talking about the COC. But, you know, that's just me being depressing. I mean... <laughs> Everybody, because the DOC is not binding and has no enforcement mechanism, and presumably the COC, even if it was, quote, binding, wouldn't have an enforcement mechanism either. It means that violations are in the eye of the beholder. And everybody says, what I do is fine. What you do is a violation of, of the DOC. So we haven't talked about one final major claimant. And I don't know if Nat has thoughts, but Alina Brunei. certainly would. Brunei, what is up with the fact that Brunei said it was going to submit its extended continental shelf 10 years ago? I'm kidding. Malaysia. What the heck does the Anwar government think about the South China Sea? Do we have any idea? We do not, because actually there has been a lot of preoccupation on domestic politics. So what else is new in Malaysia, right? So state elections going on right now. But really, I mean, foreign policy, whether on South China Sea or on other issues, has really been on autopilot for the past few months under the Anwar government. And I would argue even prior to that. So it's status quo. The claims still hold and nothing much has really changed. Mm. I mean, there was that agreement a couple of months ago between Indonesia and Malaysia to settle some of the, the yeah. boundary issues, but they weren't in the sensitive areas. And actually, I had a bit of a chuckle on your point about domestic issues. I looked at the Malaysian news and I was like, really, you've made this into a domestic issue that the opposition parties claimed that Anwar was giving away parts of Malaysian territory and he had to come out and make a statement. I'm like, just chill. Like, it's a good thing. Can we just take this as a win for the nation and, and also for intra-ASEAN ties and just move on? Like, do we need to point score with that? So, yeah, you know, you're going to get this kind of stuff. But yeah, so even that agreement was politicized. I was like, really? Just just take the win. And I'd like to see where it goes next because Indonesia seems to be on a bit of a roll at the moment with this maritime delimitation. So let's keep that momentum going. It is curious that other than obviously China, Malaysia has the most undemarcated boundaries in the South China Sea. It's never demarcated an EEZ boundary that I know of. It hasn't really gone after the continental shelves since the late 70s when it negotiated most of the continental shelf boundaries with Indonesia and some of the territorial sea boundaries. Now you have the new deal to demarcate additional points, mostly around the Strait of Malacca, not in contested territory. But I, I don't really understand why Malaysia has been so uniquely hesitant to negotiate maritime boundaries as opposed to Indonesia, the Philippines, and Vietnam, all of which have made a lot of progress in the last 20 years. I don't know if it's been hesitation more than just a lack of action, honestly. Well, lack of interest. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think there's interest. I just think there has been a lack of actual will to do something about it. 
Uh, and they have to, every new government has to spend like a year and a half re-arguing the Pedro Branca case before they can do anything else on maritime delimitation. I mean, yeah, it seems like a compulsory prerequisite. <laughs> Any other topics we want to bring in? I would raise on the point of Malaysia and the South China Sea, and it kind of goes for Indonesia and to some extent Vietnam, though Vietnam's more active in other ways. From Indonesia and Malaysia, you still have the oil and gas exploration uh, continuing. We had, I think it was back in January, where Indonesia announced the tuna block was going ahead with development and would be supported by the Indonesian military if necessary. And you had China send their largest Coast Guard boat kind of in a signal of objection to that. But one duality in the South China Sea that I have found interesting is that the Philippines is now at least the most vocal claimant against Chinese activities and vocal in asserting its own claims. But it's the one that's not exploring for oil and gas because it's afraid of what will happen. They, they shut it down last year when they sent their first survey ship out in, in several years. But Malaysia, Indonesia, and Vietnam are all kind of quietly enduring and persisting with their activities, even as China sends Coast Guard and a survey ship, which is in Malaysia's easy right now. Yeah, I suppose maybe I'm being a bit hard on Indonesia, right? They are persisting with it nevertheless. They haven't packed up and said, no, we're not going to, we're going to stand down. And I think this is kind of one point that I did want to raise is that I'm actually interested to see where Indonesia's national policy goes on this with respect to the change of government that will happen next year. Jokowi has finished 10 years in government. He can't stand again as president. So we have three candidates at the moment who seem the most likely to, to keep running. It's not necessarily sure how each one of those candidates, if they were to become president, what kind of stance they might take on this. Who will their defense minister be? Who will their foreign minister be? So I'm kind of interested to see where this will evolve for Indonesia. And so, you know, as like Alina said, there's always this kind of like honeymoon period where you have to settle in and, and redo a whole bunch of things. And so for Indonesia... The next 18 months, if not two years, are going to be pretty uncertain. And all I hope is that it doesn't drop the ball on pushing forward on ASEAN mechanisms and bilateral mechanisms, unilateral mechanisms as well. Malaysia has been interesting because Malaysian oil and gas development, and particularly the cassowary field over the last two years, has, has been an exception to Malaysia's otherwise quiet, somewhat meek position on the South China Sea. And we've seen the Malaysian Maritime Enforcement Agency and the Royal Malaysian Navy sent out to mostly just kind of follow around, play cat and mouse with Chinese ships, but Malaysian oil and gas operations have gone forward. I don't know what to make of that. I'd be curious if Lino or Nat have thoughts. I wonder if maybe it's the role of Petronas in the system that when Petronas says, no, we need this for the bottom line, and they're you know the largest taxpayer in the country, maybe that's enough to break through the political malaise when it comes to this issue. I mean, I think there's certainly an element of that, but the preference from Putrajaya has been to just tone things down, right, rhetorically. So we don't go around with a megaphone, but if we have to do things on the ground, in the sea, under the sea, then under I think... Under the sea. Sorry. <laughs> and presumably, you know, the folks who do that also sing that song when they're exploring <laughs> the ocean depth. It's an old shanty. Everybody knows it. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think it's basically like less talk more action in a way, which is actually quite in contrast to how Malaysia acts. But it is a, an interesting point to note. I better take that win. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a pretty comprehensive survey of at least the dynamics between China and the Southeast Asian claimants. If you'd like to hear more about the dynamics between China and the U.S., you could listen to literally any other podcast 
being recorded in Washington, D.C. this week. For now, that's all the time we have. We will speak to all of you again in two weeks. Harrison, Nat, Alina, thank you all so much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org. And we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. And tell your friends about us. And it's It's Southeast Southeast Asia Asia Radio in your your area. area. Marla Hiller is our producer and our interns are Yume Lin and Ramil Mercado. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Jaffet Kitsan. And I'm Ramil Mercado. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Radio.